The truth that we're going to be looking at this morning is from Colossians 3.10, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. We're actually going to start with verse 9, since that's where the, the sentence starts, and there are several things in these two verses that we could talk about, but I'm going to hone in on one particular phrase, Colossians 3. 9 and 10. Let's all stand together one more time as we receive the word of the Lord. Paul is writing to this, Paul is writing this to the church in Colossae and starting in verse 9 he says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Let's pray. Lord, I just Thank you so much for, God, the sweetness of your presence that is in this place right now. Lord, there are all kinds of reasons that we could say about why we are here this morning. God, it ultimately boils down to the fact that you have set events into motion and have orchestrated things to where everyone in here is here because you ordained it. And there's a reason for it, God. I, I believe that you have a specific word for people here this morning. And God, I pray that when we leave here, Lord, we just had this sense that we were sitting at your feet, that we were laying against you. Lord, that we leave here knowing you more than we do even right now. So Holy Spirit, give us a revelation of who you are. We may be changed by it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we're looking at this morning is that phrase there where it says that you are being renewed to a true knowledge. And so if you are in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, this is you. You are being renewed to a true knowledge. I know some of you are going, well, cool. But what does that mean? That's what we're going to look at. This statement is within the context of the old self being taken off and the new self being put on. And this is a common expression that Paul uses in many of his letters to all the Christians that he wrote to in different parts of the Mediterranean. He wanted them to know, and therefore God wants us to know and to understand that the moment we are saved, a miraculous transformation immediately takes place. In some texts, Paul actually uses the word that we get our word metamorphosis from, as in a caterpillar metamorphs into a butterfly. A butterfly is not just an improved worm. It is an altogether different or new creature. That is what happens to us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, not an improved creature, not a modified creature, but an altogether new one because the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Ephesians 4.24 says to put off your old self and to put on the new self. This is what happened to you the moment that you put your trust in Jesus for salvation. Your identity before God as guilty, rebellious, self-centered, an enemy of his and an object of his wrath. That identity you had immediately died and you became a favored, loved, cherished holy child of God. This is how he sees you now, regardless of how you feel, regardless even of how you behave all the time. This is who you are now in Christ, and it is something that cannot be changed back. I mean, you may do things every now and then that look a lot like your old self, but like we talked about last week, those things are what you do, not who you are. You have a new self that is never going to be changed back, can never be changed back into your old self again, just like a butterfly can never change back into a caterpillar again. Now, it can crawl around on the ground with its old worm buddies, but it will never be a caterpillar again. It is forever identified as a butterfly. You, if you are have faith in Jesus for your salvation, you are forever and from now on identified by God as this new self in Christ. There's three things about this new you that is important to understand. There are things about you now that have been done, that are being done, and that will be done. In the Bible, you'll see this referred to as saved, being saved, and will be saved when it's referring to believers. In church terms, it's called justified, sanctified, and glorified. You have been justified, you are being sanctified, and you will be glorified. This phrase that we're looking at here in Colossians 3.10 is all within that sanctified Uh, phase. It is being done and will continue to be done until either you are called home to heaven or Jesus returns, whichever one comes first. And when that happens, you enter phase three, glorified. But until that does happen, your new self in Christ is being renewed to a true knowledge. Now, a knowledge of what? Well, it says right there, a knowledge according to the image of the one, which is capitalized, who created him, which is not capitalized. The him there is referring to your new self. It's a knowledge uh, according to the one who created your new self in Christ, which is Jesus. You're being renewed or growing in your knowledge of Jesus, which, by the way, is the ultimate goal of life. Write that down. It's the first point in your notes if you're following along in the bulletin there. The goal of life is to know Jesus. Now, religion tells us that the goal of life is to stop sinning. It is to try harder, to do better, to act gooder. I know that's not good English, but I didn't want to be redundant, okay? It only focuses on the outward actions, but our outward actions just reflect what we know of Jesus. The more we know him, the more sin begins to lose its appeal. 
So the goal is to know him more. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me in this world, I consider those things trash compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And he says that he has suffered the loss of all things for the sake of knowing Jesus. In other words, he's saying that if, if losing everything I have in this world means that by doing so, I will know Jesus more than let it be. How glorious knowing Jesus must be if losing everything is worth knowing him. How good must it be to know him? If, if anyone be willing to lose everything to do that, knowing Jesus is the goal. The next point, what you know about him affects everything. What you know about him affects everything. And this isn't a know as in knowing a fact. It's a heart-deep belief. I've talked before about the difference between just simply knowing something and truly believing it. For example, we all know that God loves us. But to really believe that he loves you will totally change your life. We say that we know of his grace, but not everyone really believes that that grace applies to them. They don't believe it. They don't know it for themselves. And so for this message today, every time I say to know, I'm talking about that kind of a know. It is a deep heart-rooted belief. I guess another way of putting it is to say the difference between knowing about something versus truly knowing it. You see, everyone on earth, even those who claim to be atheists, know something about God. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says that everyone is without excuse because what is known about God is evident in them Because God has made it evident to them. Because all of his invisible attributes are clearly seen through what he has made. Everyone knows about God. But only those who have been saved through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus can say that they truly know him. This is the knowing that I'm talking about in this. As I was meditating on this text, I began thinking about things in my own life that I have come to know in God that changed things for me. Coming to know these things, to truly know them about God, to not just agree with them in my mind, but for these things to really take root deep down in my soul. These were what I called defining moments in my Christian walk. And if you know these things too, And I believe you would agree with me that they change things. I've listed four of them in your notes because my prayer is that we would all come to truly know this about God. And the first one is this, to truly know that God is good. Now, this isn't the catchy, I say God is good and you repeat back all the time. No, this is truly believing deep down that he really is good no matter how much everything around you looks bad. I can't say that when I first came to know the Lord, I truly knew this. I definitely knew about his goodness because I, would, I read about it in the Bible, I, I sing about his goodness in songs in church, but to truly know it for myself took some time. 
There were things that would happen in life that would cause me to question or begin doubting his goodness, which I'm sure some of you can identify with. And some of you may even be at a place right now where you're going through something that is causing you to really doubt the goodness, the complete goodness of God. I'm going to tell you, don't be afraid to admit that. God is not going to strike you down for, for doubting his goodness. He's big, big enough to handle your doubt, and he's strong enough not to get his feelings hurt over it. If you haven't yet come to know his goodness, he's going to be patient with you and know that you eventually will because Colossians 3.10 says that you are being renewed to a true knowledge. He will grow you in that day by day. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. He's not going to hold anything back from you just because you may be going through a season of doubt. He's patient and he's gracious. Now, why is it good to know that God is good? Well, for one thing, it helps us get through anything that life throws at us without getting all bitter about it. You see, it's easy to say that God is good when things are good. You get a new job promotion, God is good. You get an A on your test, God is good. You get healed from a sickness, God is good. It's easy to say he's good in things like that. I mean, you hear athletes all the time on TV giving glory to God and talking about how good he is every time their team wins. What you don't hear very often is them giving glory to God and declaring his goodness when their team loses. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him no matter what. No matter what. He's most glorified when we can go through pain and difficulty and suffering and hardship. And in the midst of that, in the middle of it, not that we've gone through it and now we're not dealing with it anymore, but in the middle of it, stand there and declare that God is good. I mean, how good must he really be that someone can say that and believe it when they've lost their job suddenly and the future is uncertain? How good must he be that, that someone can say that in the midst of grieving over the loss of a loved one, like a spouse or, or even a child? I know people like that. I've heard people declare his goodness in the most heart-wrenching things in life. And I'm telling you, it makes God look so glorious. It makes him look so good. That's why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous and full of error. It's not a strong enough word. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to say what I was thinking. The prosperity gospel defines God's goodness in terms of physical health and material wealth. It elevates the created to the level of the creator. And it completely disregards suffering and hardship as tools that God uses to mold us more into the people that he created us to be. Those who buy into the prosperity gospel would have a hard time declaring his goodness in those things because they think that it's a sign of his favor being removed from them somehow. But he is good. And when you come to really know that, it brings a sense of peace and security that simply isn't there when you don't know it. Especially when it's coupled with the next thing. Number two, 
to know that he is sovereign. Sovereign means having complete power and authority. Another way of saying is that, is that God is in control, that nothing happens in this world without first being sifted through his hands. Now, we could spend a whole series just unpacking the sovereignty of God. And if he really is sovereign and nothing happens without him signing off on it, then I understand that that brings up some difficult questions that have to be wrestled with. It does. There's no doubt about it. And when I first came to begin to know his sovereignty, I had to wrestle with those things myself. But he was gracious and patient enough with me and and, and guided me through those things and answered them in his perfect timing. And he will you too if you truly seek to know him. To really know that God is good and that he is in control of all things relieves so much fear and anxiety. Because if it's true, then there's nothing at all for us to fear if we belong to him. There's really nothing for us to get all worked up and anxious and worry about. It means that I can rest in the fact that whatever difficult or painful situation I face, I understand that this is just one very small pixel that I'm able to see that makes up this beautiful picture that God has put together of my life. It means that no matter how bad things may look to me, I know that God is right now in the process of working every detail of it out for my good and his glory. It also means, as I've talked before, that I can now live life with absolute reckless abandon, knowing that he will not allow anything to happen that would prevent his purposes in me from being fulfilled. It took me a while after my salvation to come to know God truly as sovereign, and until I did, I did struggle with a lot of that anxiety and fear. I'm not saying that it's completely gone, but it's not near a struggle as it was before I came to know that. Knowing that he is in control and good and that I belong to him, I'm telling you, it is the most secure thing I can possibly think of. Next thing it's good to know about God is that he hates sin. Now, here's how that one aspect of God has changed over the course of my relationship with him. When I was younger, I knew this about God in the worst, most religiously possible way. Believing that it also meant that whenever I did sin, that that hatred of his spilled over to me. The belief was that if God hates sin and I commit sin, well, then God must hate me as well. And there are so many people I know that still struggle with that same thought. But then I received a revelation of his grace, and I realized that he didn't hate me, but he loved me despite my sin. And at first, because that was so freeing, To someone who is bound up in so much legalism, it caused me to swing the pendulum of grace a little further than 
it should have been to where I was not taking sin as serious as I should have been. And it's even like, oh, don't even acknowledge it. Don't even talk about it. It, it, You shouldn't do that. It almost, I mean, I wasn't there to where I was using grace as a license to sin, but I could have easily gone down that path. The pendulum of of God-hating sin just went from one extreme to the other. But I have, in God's grace, have since come to what I believe is a more balanced understanding of that. And that really began to take shape when I became a father. Because when I first held one of my babies in my arms for the first time, I'm telling you, to think of anyone causing harm to this precious treasure made me realize for the very first time that I really could kill somebody. Many of you fathers know what I'm talking about. This sudden urge to protect this child rose up in me like a tidal wave. And the thought of someone causing harm to someone of mine made me realize that I could easily take another human being's life and not think twice about it. Now some of you are going, the preacher said he could kill somebody. (laughs) Listen, I'm not saying it's Christ-like way to act. I'm just being honest with you. And tell you that's what a father's heart is like. But, I mean, if someone tries to harm my wife or kids or anyone that I love that much, I would gladly take that as a sign that I was suddenly called to prison ministry. (laughs) That is the kind of anger and wrath and rage that I have against someone or something that would cause harm to anyone who belongs to me. Because my love for them is so strong, it leads me to hate whatever would harm them. That's exactly what it means for God to hate sin. Sin is what harms us and robs us of everything that God created us to be. It steals the joy that he desires to lead us into. And that's why he hates it so much. And it goes right along with the last thing that it's good to know about God. To know that God loves me. It's because he loves us so much that he hates and he harbors wrath for anything that would cause harm to us. This belief that that God couldn't hate, that he couldn't possibly be capable of hate because he's a God of love just flatly isn't true. The fact that he is a God of love means that he has hate for things that would harm or come against the things that he loves. If he didn't have hate for what would harm us, then he wouldn't have very much love for us. His hate for sin is just a product of his love because he is a good, good father who looks after his own. Knowing this is what it means for God to hate sin just makes me want to avoid it all the more. It also makes you realize that all this talk in the world about God, he being good with certain sins is just not right. It's not true at all. And it can be easy to let the beliefs of the world creep into the church and get mixed in with our Christian beliefs, especially when it comes to this. For example, the whole homosexual thing. 
more and more Christians today are taking on the belief of the culture and becoming more accepting of that, just like the culture around us is, and believing the lie that God wouldn't be against that because he is a God of love. And if two people, no matter their gender, genuinely love each other, then it can't be wrong. But knowing that this is what it means for God to hate sin allows us to even see that issue from the correct perspective. Yes, God is a God of love, and because of that, he hates anything that is not by his design. His designs are there for our good and for our joy. Anything that goes against his design would rob us of the good and the joy that he intends for us. And taking all this together, that he's good, he's sovereign, he hates sin, he loves us, makes you see and understand that God's commands in his words are not there to take anything from us or to keep us from anything good. They are there to protect us and to lead us into pure joy. God being against homosexuality or any sin for that matter just means that he is for us. He's for us, not against us. Just because we may want something to be okay doesn't mean that God's a big, mean old ogre for not allowing it. I mean, how childish is it to think like that? That's what a toddler does. I mean, if, a to- if we pull a toddler away from the electrical outlet because they're about to stick their finger in it, That toddler is going to cry and wail and throw a fit about it, thinking that you are so mean for not letting them do what they want to. Same thing happens with us and God at times. I'm telling you right now, to know that God truly loves you will change your life like nothing else. Like nothing else. And that's one of those things that I was talking about earlier that many people believe in theory They believe it more for everyone else and have a harder time believing that for themselves. And I know that because I was in that same boat for a long time. But I remember when I first realized that it meant he loved me. Me? Are you kidding? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what is in my heart? Do you know what kind of thoughts go through my mind? But you love me. I'm telling you, it wrecked me. It absolutely wrecked me and changed everything. Especially how I treat others because if you are full of God's love, you can't help but let that spill over into others as well. God loves you. You. And if you don't fully know that yet, I pray that you will. I believe that you will because God's word says you're being renewed to a true knowledge. Of course, these four things are not the only things that there is to know about God. And, I mean, these are just the four 
that jumped to the front of my mind as I thought about what I've come to know about God since my initial salvation that I really couldn't say that I knew deep down before. And it's not now that I know these things that I have arrived in my knowledge of God. No, not at all. I mean, I hadn't even scratched the surface. God is so multifaceted. There are things still yet to be discovered. I know I haven't arrived at him. I'm so excited about that because that means there are still other things about him that I get to come to know that I don't know right now. And it's true for you too. I mean, some people thinking it, man, I'm saved. All I can do is just cruise now and, and wait for heaven. That Christian life is boring. Come on. You don't know God. I mean, it's exciting. I'm so excited about knowing that I'm still Until I'm called home or Jesus returns, I get to discover more things about him. That I may believe intellectually right now, but at some point, man, it's going to sink down into here and it's going to change everything. And you can be excited about that too because it says you are being renewed to a true knowledge. If you belong to Christ, this is happening to you right now. Now, and it's guaranteed to happen because this doesn't depend on you, it depends on God. It's His doing, not yours. And growing in the knowledge of Him does not mean just doing more Bible studies. Yes, that is important. And listen to me you cannot fully know God unless you know His Word because this is how He has revealed Himself to us. But just knowing things in the Bible doesn't do you much good unless you apply it to real life. It's when the truth of God's word intersects with life that the rubber meets the road when it comes to knowing things about God. It's in those real life situations that you go from knowing it here to knowing it here, that it moves from your head to your heart. So here's the takeaway from this today. If God is in the process of growing you in the knowledge of him, then one of the reasons for everything that he leads you through is for you to be able to know him in ways that you didn't had you not gone through that. You following me? Give you an example. He may allow sickness to come so that you can know him, know him as healer. I read that he heals in his word, but then I experience it and know it in real life. Or he may choose not to heal you so that you would know him as all-sufficient even in the midst of sickness. He may lead you into a situation where people that you have relied on suddenly leave. They're not there anymore so that you can know him as the one who will never leave you and never forsake you. Or he may lead others into your life and come around and support and love on you so you can know him as the one who puts the lonely in families, according to Psalm 68, 6. He may lead you in a win- into a windfall of money so that you can know him as the God who provides for all of your needs Or he may lead you into a situation where you lose all your money so that you can know him as the one who provides all of your needs. And that way you don't just know it because the Bible says it, but you've actually lived it. Let me tell you something. The two go hand in hand. 
if you're just studying the Bible, but you're not applying it to life, you're just a self-righteous religious person. But if you're just basing everything you know about God on your life experiences and not lining it up with his word, you're just flailing in the wind with no direction at all. Because your experiences change, your emotions change, and this and that. I'm telling you, too many people are are basing, declaring things about God based only on their emotion and their experience, and it's got nothing to do with his word. Don't make that mistake. The two have to go together. I mean, this is how these four things became cemented in my heart. I read about them all the time in the Bible, but he led me into situations that really sealed the deal. You know, for a while there, I believe Carol and I really weren't on the same page when it come, came to God's sovereignty. I mean, I would talk about it and get all excited about it. She wouldn't be near as excited about it as I would, and she'd hear me talking about it. But part of her would just kind of be like, mm, nah, I don't know. But it was these things that happened because of a miscarriage that we had. She came to know him as the God who is truly sovereign. And he is involved in every tiny detail. And it cemented that for her. Some things that he was showing her in his word that just went right along with it. And she was like, okay, I'm not doubting you anymore. I get it. I know you as sovereign. God wants you to know him. And he wants it so bad that he will go to great lengths in order for you to know him in ways that you don't right now. And if you doubt that, just look at the cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross and suffered like that so that you can know him. And when you do, it changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible and humbling thing To think that in your glory and your majesty and your perfection that you would want broken people like us to know you. Lord, it is amazing. We don't deserve to know you and yet you went through the agony of the cross so that we could. doesn't make sense God I thank you for it and Lord I pray for those in here right now that are struggling with some aspect of you Lord that you would speak through the clutter and the noise that's not allowing them to hear you clearly or to see you for who you are that you would just Remove the fog right now, Lord. And show them the truth. 
Lord, I pray for those right now that they would say, I know a lot about God. I know a lot about Jesus, but I don't truly know him. Lord, I believe that hell is going to be full of many people who went to church every Sunday and went through the religious motions and knew how to speak the language. But they only knew about you. They never truly knew you. Lord, I don't want that to happen for anybody in this church. So God, if there is anyone in that place right now, I pray that you would give them revelation that they can't deny. I pray that you would make them an offer that they can't refuse and fully surrender themselves to you. Lord, we just want to know you. Thank you for wanting that too. Thank you for being patient with us before we get to that place of truly knowing some of these things about you. Thank you, God, that you are more about the journey to get there than you are just being there right now or else we would be there right now. God, you are so good. Thank you for calling us and choosing us and making us your own and for being a good, good father who is all in on our joy so we can just turn that back to you in worship. We love you. We praise you and ask all these things in your name according to your will. Amen.